0: Hello and welcome to another special edition of the Officers Club podcast. In the latest in our series of summer interviews, I spoke to former Bees player and BBC London commentator Carl Bates about how he got into commentary, his time following Barnet up and down the country and his career since he stopped covering the club. You can download and subscribe to the Officers Club podcast on iTunes, Acast, Player FM and Soundcloud or by heading to officersclubpod.com. Don't forget that you can also get in contact with us on Twitter at Barnet underscore podcast. Tell me, Carl, how did you get into commentary in the first place? Well, it's it
1: started, unfortunately, on a on a rather sad note. My mum, unfortunately, uh, died of cancer when she was 38. But um, when she was in hospital, she got a lot of comfort from hospital radio. It just helped for a short periods take her mind off things and... Um, A number of years later, probably four or five years later, I happened to be in one of um, jobs at Network Rail. And I happened to bump into somebody that did hospital radio. And we got on really well. And he said, oh, you know, you've got quite a good voice for radio. Why don't you come and have a go at hospital radio itself? As I thought it was a bit of self-therapy, I'd give it a go. So I went down to Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge and we did hospital radio for a little bit. I really got the buzz for it, really enjoyed it. And it was good. I think hospital radio is a great way of getting into commentary or to get into radio itself, because you're left to your own devices to an extent. Nobody's expecting miracles. Everybody knows you're doing it voluntarily. And so it's a really good way of learning how to, I suppose, speak. And that sounds ridiculous, but to speak on the radio, speak to yourself, because at the end of the day, people are listening, but they're not in front of you. And it tests, you get used to linking things in, like songs or clips or adverts or whatever that may be. So it helps you multitask while talking at the same time. So we did that for probably around six, nine months. Then we got a lucky break. He lived out in Grantham, and they started a local radio show called Boundary Sound. So we sent our stuff off over there. They gave us a Saturday morning breakfast show, which uh, we did for (laughs) very minimal wage, put it that way, because it was an up-and-coming radio show. We did that for a while. I then wrote off to the BBC and just said, this is me, I like X, Y and Z, plus football, this is my demo disc, and sent it over to them. I got incredibly, incredibly lucky. I remember I was at home one Tuesday night and the phone went and it was... Hello, this is Emma Joslin from the BBC. I'm... Huge, ridiculously long job title. And she said, um, we're looking for somebody to come in and read out the full-time scores live on BBC One this Saturday, uh, Football Focus. Are you interested? I said, I'll just check the diary. So I said, funnily enough, uh, yeah, yeah, I am. Thought it was a wind-up. I thought one of my friends has somehow found out that I've sent this idea off to the BBC. Went along, this was the olden days when it was at White City, before it was moved on to uh, Oxford Street. Went to the front desk and said, hi, I'm Carl Bates, I'm here to read out the full-time scores today. And they looked through the list, yeah, no problem, grab a seat. I thought, oh, well, this is real, okay, keep it calm." And uh, somebody came out to get me. We went through the doors that you always see Terry Wogan open when they used to do um, like comic relief and children in need and things like that. And there was Zoe Ball and Gary Lineker having a fight, only messing about, but nonetheless, very strange. Then went into a room where they had flat-screen TVs and they had Peter Smichael was in there, Alan Hansen, and they all said hello. And they said, oh, we'll just leave you in here for a minute, Carl. I've just got to set up some things. So there I am sitting with these guys there. We're watching all the games and, like, uh, Peter Smichael saying to me, oh, Carl, what do you think of so Do you think he's any good? I'm like, who cares? You've won the Champions League. He's won the league title. God knows how many times. You've scored in the World Cup semi-final. And you're asking me who once for my school team played at Cambridge United's ground. But nonetheless, the chat went on. And um, at five o'clock, I think his name, James Alexander Gordon read out the full-time scores. And then at six o'clock, I got to sit in front of a television. um, They spoke to me in the mic and said, right, Carl, in a couple of minutes... Uh, Clive Tilsley's going to pass, sorry, not Clive Tilsley, Ray Stubbs is going to pass over to yourself and then you're going to read out the full-time scores. And they thought, just for a laugh, they'd let me know that, by the way, there's probably around 3.1 million people watching. Best of luck. And then Ray Stubbs passed it over to me. I read out the full-time scores. Thankfully, didn't fluff it. And then the CV's gone up from, yeah, not bad to very impressive. There was an advert in the Guardian uh, website for football commentators wanted. So I applied. Now my CV's obviously got some ilk to it. That's where I met Barry for that first game against Mansfield. Apparently Barry narrowed it down to six people. The first guy didn't show up because he had to get a replacement bus service or something along those lines. Funnily enough, I didn't. So I went to the ground. I walked. I can It was a long way. Got to the ground, met Barry. At the time, the idea was Barry was going to commentate on the game I was just going to use a laptop and if any goals went in, I'd interrupt and let him know the goals or if there was a break in play, I'd just reel off the latest scores from around the grounds. But he said, tell you what, just before the game started, he said to me, he said, tell you what, if you fancy actually having a go at co-commentating, press that light there, your microphone will become live, why not have a go? And at the time I thought, well, this is the only time I'm ever going to get to commentate on a football match, let's give it a go. So press the button, it worked really, really well. Barry offered us the position straight after the game it was only voluntarily Uh, it was a voluntary role I did that for a year probably a year and a half working as Barry's co-commentator I wasn't getting paid for it I was traveling all over the country we went to the likes of Hereford Torquay, Morecambe, Fleetwood you know some really wonderful places and um, yeah I did that until Barry moved on to do um, some work for Talk Sport and some uh, online commentaries, and then obviously because I knew the ropes, Pete Stevens at BBC London, who I'll always be grateful to, said, "Carl, you know you've earned your stripes. Why not do the job itself?" And the rest, as they say, is history.
0: For some of our younger listeners who perhaps never got a chance to hear you commentating on Barnet, what what years did you cover Barnet over? Well, I started commentating on Barnet. It
1: was October two thousand and seven. It was a one all draw with Mansfield. Liam Hatch. With the
0: second half equaliser, and I covered them for around five, five and a half years. Okay, so covering Barnet's always something of a roller coaster, isn't it? What were the, what happened in those seasons you were covering them, and what were the big, the big matches that you covered?
1: Well, as all Bees fans know, unfortunately, up to date as it was then, we always seem to be dabbling with relegation. So I'd say the biggest games that I was involved in was those matches battling the drop. First time it came to hand would have been Port Vale at home. And for those of you who didn't know, Barnett survived on the last game. It was an Isaac McLeod penalty just after half-time. We then had, well, Burton Albion away, which was an incredible game to cover. Thankfully, Barnett won 2-1. And then obviously on the flip side of the coin, I think one of the most gutting games I had would have been Swindon away in the Johnston Paint Trophy semi-final. It was 1-0 from the first leg at Underhill. Mark Hughes had scored and uh, Swindon got an early goal. Barnet couldn't get an equaliser and our chance of Wembley, sadly, was dashed by the Robins. And then, well, my last ever game for Barnett, which was the match at uh, Sixfields when we were beaten 2-0 by Northampton. And deep down at the time, I knew because Barnett were dropping into the conference, that would be my
0: last game covering the bees. So you must have worked with or interviewed after the game so many different managers while you were covering Barnett. Who were the, the best managers to work with? Who were the worst ones to work with?
1: I'd say, I mean, well, a number is an understatement. I mean, during my time at Underhill, the club must have changed manager. I think it was 12 times in five years, which was staggering. I'll quickly reel them off from what I can remember. There was Paul Fairclough, when I first started, he came in a few times as interim manager. Then we had uh, local hero Grazioli was in for a while. We had Ian Hendon, Laurie Sanchez, Mark Stimpson and Mark Robson were there short term. We had Martin Allen, obviously, who, well, has a... Love-hate relationship with the club. He seems to come in and save the uh, the Barnet from getting relegated. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case this time around. And well, a simply bizarre Edgar Davids as manager, which still is fascinating to put it mildly but i'd say actually when interviewing them themselves it's a surprising choice from people who have listened to me commentate over the years that the best person i would say would actually be mark stimpson and that is just for sheer bravery and always willing to help i remember a game i did up at uh, gresty road crew barnett had been heavily defeated i think he might have been seven nil. it really was a thumping the crowd um, weren't particularly behind him then the pressure was on i'd gone pitch side to interview him And when i got there the microphone had failed and if you've ever been to Gresty road we're based right at the back of the main stand which is a really really high way up and most managers would have said look we've been beaten seven nil your equipment's failed sorry fella i'm not having this you know it's not good enough but nonetheless he followed me the whole way to the top of the stand and not only did we do the interview because i'd let the studio know that i was just about to record this they said is there any chance we can get mark live on air to talk about this, and he did. They've just been beaten 7-0 pressures on. He still stepped up and spoke about it. Obviously, you had the likes of Gratz and Hendo, Ian Hendon, and purely for their love and passion for the bees, That came through abundantly every time they were interviewed. Easiest one, I'd say, would be Paul Fairclough. Never stop talking football. I had to actually, literally every interview, just, yeah, yeah, thanks, 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 Paul, yeah, yeah. And it really was hard just to actually try and get that snippet with him. Hardest ones, I'd say Edgar Davids. One, it's bizarre. You've got quite simply Edgar Davids staring at you, which is bizarre when you're covering Barnet. And also just his natural attitude. He wasn't trying to be rude. He was just naturally very short and sharp when he spoke. That was to myself or anybody. I don't think it was personal. So he was always very hard to interview because you had to have two or three questions ready because he would only answer a sentence, maybe two sentences at best. And also a surprising one, really, Laurie Sanchez, but not, I don't believe, anyway, because a lot of people thought he'd come across as ignorant or rather offish. But after speaking to him a number of times, I'd say he actually, bizarrely, is quite shy, to to, to me anyway. When I spoke to him, he was very um, sort of off-mic or off-camera, wherever you want to describe it. He was very, he, he's softly spoken. I mean, he's a big, he's an imposing guy. I mean, he must be, he's well over six foot, he's very stocky, but nonetheless, A very shy, softly spoken fella. Mark Robson, I felt so sorry for him how he was treated. The poor guy was doing his best. He was undermined relentlessly behind the scenes. And I remember covering one game at Dagenham and Redbridge. And it was when Edgar Davids had gone in as joint manager. So we we knew pretty much the writing was on the wall for him. And uh, I remember going into Dagenham and Redbridge's ground as like a... Behind the scenes, there's a small tunnel, and you've got the two changing rooms there. And I could see the door was slightly ajar, and Mark Robson was in with John still. Mark was in tears. John, obviously, who's now back at the club, Was had a consoling arm round him. He was, you know, unconsolable, really. He knew what was coming. He was getting treated unfairly. Edgar Davids has come out to all the press to do the interview, talking about how everything's going great behind the scenes. Mark's this, that, and the other. And it couldn't have been more opposite. So had a lot of time for Mark. He really didn't get a fair crack at the whip.
0: That really is quite an incredible array of managers, isn't it, over over that time. Um, In terms of players, um, I guess you've seen quite a few talented players put on a B-shirt over the years. Who were the ones that really stood out for you and you really enjoyed watching?
1: I'd say um, probably the first two would be Albert Adoma and Ricky Holmes, both tricky wingers, a very quick direct Plenty of skills to full full backs, get down the line. But both had the ability also to cut in and be goal scorers, a genuine threat in that um, sort of final third of the field. I never really got to see Jason Punchin much because he moved on to bigger and brighter things fairly quickly after I arrived. But one thing that did surprise me, I can honestly say, I would never, never have guessed Yannick Belassi would have developed into the player he is now. I mean, at the time, he had pace to burn. But half of the time, he seemed to have no real idea where he was going. He had plenty of skill, but he wasn't quite sure what trick he'd just done. So the ball would go off and go out of play or just bounce harmlessly off him. And also, he was wafer thin as well. Now he's really stocked up at Everton. He's a very strong attacking winger. And he is, well, I just couldn't see it. Nowhere in the world could I have seen the talent that was hidden below this thin, well, just loose cannon almost. Barnet. one day would be very good, but some days could be simply awful. A couple of players that have done well. Andy Yard, obviously has recently gone to Reading. Mark Byrne at Gillingham has just cleaned up uh, their awards at the end of the season. And Neil Bishop, who just missed out on promotion with Scunthorpe. Three lovely lads, all very young when they were at Barnett. One of the nice things when I covered the bees is that young players always did get a good chance to impress. And the likes of Ricky and Albert. I mean, Albert came to the club. I remember interviewing him after his first game. It was literally like interviewing a child. He was so shy, really, didn't really know what to say. It's like when you, it was literally like talking to a child, but obviously he's gone on to do, well, some fantastic things. Obviously, he's back in the Premier League, um, or will be, should I say. He Paul Fairclough, first interview, Paul Fairclough said, Albert O'Domey will play in the Premier League. And, you know, everybody laughed and said, oh, typical Paul, he's getting above his station. Albert's only played one game. Well, he was right. Adoma did play a few games in the Premier League, so you know maybe Paul was under something then. But when it does come to players, though, I must admit one player who I thought was unfairly treated and regularly chastised by the cl- by the crowd was Eisel McLeod. He played up front for Barnet for a couple of seasons, mainly under Laurie Sanchez, and he was often billed as lazy, didn't do anything, didn't track back. But whenever, I mean. For anybody who doesn't know Underhill, the press area, you're sitting right behind the two dugouts. Halfway line, it's a it's a great view, or sadly was a great view. And you could always see Laurie Sanchez telling Eisel McLeod, play on the last line. Do not leave that area. Stay in the final third where possible. Always be pushing the centre-halves back again. And so that's what Eisel did. He scored a lot of goals that season. And nonetheless, regularly, the crowd would be constantly moaning at him for not tracking back, not running the lines, not pushing the fullbacks. And I really felt for him. You could see the frustration in him. He literally felt like screaming, I'm doing what I'm told, I'm still scoring goals. But yeah, nonetheless, he never really was one of those players that the crowd could, should we say, affiliate or associate themselves with. While you look at John Akinde now, you know, the fans love him and rightfully so. He's done, you know, a great job for Barnett and they were very lucky to keep him
0: within the ranks for as long as they did. Talk about Eisenman McLeod, who as you say, scored a bucket load of goals for the club. Were there any real standout goals or moments that stick in your mind when you were covering the bees?
1: Well, obviously, speaking of Isaac McLeod, um, mentioned it briefly earlier on, his goal against uh, Port Vale, the penalty that kept Barnett up that year. I was very lucky. The commentary that I did at the time, a little quote from that, was actually put up in the... Um, football museum up in Manchester. So I didn't spot it myself. Somebody on Facebook contacted me and they took a little poster, uh, little picture of it, which was fantastic, real sort of, um, I don't know, shot in the arm, really. It was wonderful to, to notice that something like that had been put in there. There was Mark Hughes's volley at Burton Albion, the left-footed volley. I never knew Hughes had in him about an 18, 20-yard volley edge of the box, which secured Barnett's, well, once again, last-minute survival to stay in the Football League. I was blessed to have commentated on the last ever goal at Underhill. Jake Hyde's goal from about six, 12 yards, probably about six yards out penalty spot, right foot into the top left corner, which um, defeated Wickham 1-0. Looked like it was going to keep Barnet up. But I'd actually say, it'd probably be a miss, two missed penalties that would stand out. Obviously, people normally talk about goals, and when it comes to missed penalties, most people unfortunately think of England and the World Cup. But I'd say Calvin Zola, of all people, Burton Albion. It's the game that Hughes scored the winner. At the time, but Barnett needed to win the game. That was essential. And Mark Byrne had scored first, a free kick, deflected, barely went over the line. Um, Burton Albion Equalized, I can't remember who scored it. And then right on half time, Byrne was a judge to have pushed Zola. Zola stepped up to take the penalty. If he'd have scored, it's 2-1 at half-time, I don't think Barnett would have come back from that. Thankfully, he skied it, which was fantastic and Thankfully, second half, Barnett recovered. And also in that game, there was Dean Brill who was in goal. wasn't in goal for very long for Barnett. And I remember about two minutes to go. Burton Albion had a corner. Ball came in to a... I can't remember which player. It was one of the centre-halves for Burton Albion. He headed it straight back across goal, looked for all the world it was going to go in. We were right behind it in the commentary box. And somehow, Brill's got across full stretch and tipped it round the post fingertips. So even though most people would associate the goals, i would actually say the penalty save... And also obviously Graham Stack's last minute save at home to Wickham was well fantastic. I think anybody that was at that game, well, couldn't have
0: celebrated more when that happened. God, it's hard to pick between that that oh, list, God. isn't there? There's so many fantastic moments or certainly yes. very tense moments. Um let's talk a little bit about press boxes. It's you know it's something that anyone who commentates on football games you know before you go to a match you start to think oh yeah what are the facilities like there what are the the best ones you've worked in and what are the worst because they really are a mixed bag at league 2 level aren't they they are but i must admit you know one of the good
1: things about league 2 grounds is that they have something about them they have an atmosphere they have a history you look at a lot of the top flight grounds now they all pretty much look the same it's just the coloured seats of whichever team is playing massive stands there's no real character to them so I'd probably say the best grounds that I've been to, Notts County, uh, Bradford and Oxford, I would say would be my top three. You get a fantastic view of all three. The press facilities are very good. I used to extra enjoy going to Bradford because for whatever reason, Barnett always seemed to have the wood on them at Bradford. Pulled off some great results while I covered those games. I'd say the worst, easily in regards to viewing, would be Luton and Grimsby. They have stanchions. Luton's ground is ridiculous. You are sitting pretty much right behind a stanchion. You cannot see at all the goal to your left, which is normally where the Barnett fans are behind. You've just got a huge stanchion. You can touch it. It is that close to you. You can just easily raise your hand out and touch that. Grimsby has got stanchions regularly within the main stand, so it's almost like a restricted view seat, where every 20 yards or so you just miss out a section of the actual pitch. You can't see either goal. So they are awful. South Ends is not easy to see because well sorry it's easy to see but you're behind glass for whatever reason best known to man and so you have to take a really long microphone to get the effects mic out of the door so you can pick up all the sound of the crowd but because you're behind glass everybody that's commentating in that area is very very close together and it almost echoes so you can hear each other's commentary whilst on air so if anybody's listening in to me covering the match at the time you'll also hear the guys commentating next to me and if you've got somebody that's very loud then you'll hear half of their commentary over my own so it didn't come across as very professional even though there's nothing really you can do about it but I'd say the funniest has to be Stockport County bless them Stockport County's ground I went up there I don't know what obviously unfortunately considering the mess Stockport were in there must have been a while ago because they were playing league football But they had a ground that was literally, well, it was falling to pieces. We'd got set up in the press area. It was about quarter to three. I was just about to go back on air to the main show and give final team news. Everybody sat up on this big wooden bench. If you went to Underhill, it was like one of those wooden benches for the press area, but it was a lot thinner and wasn't quite in as good nick as we found out. Just as I was about to go on air, the actual desk collapsed. And everybody's equipment hit the deck, all the sockets come out of the walls, everything went completely down. And so all that way to Stockport, all I could do was every now and again, bring the studio and then just give them an update on the game, because pretty much the press area had fell apart. So that, just the trials of a football commentator, I'd say, that was bizarre, to put it mildly, and annoying, because it was such a shame, actually, from what I can remember, it was like a Three-all draw or something daft
0: like that. So again, you would love to commentate on instead of just watching. That really is unfortunate. I'm glad you mentioned Luton there because the current you know bees player commentator Jonathan Blakey and I regularly moan about that massive stanchion whenever we go there. It's quite incredible that you can't see one goal when you've got to commentate on it. Really, isn't
1: it? Yeah, it's it's crazy. Whoever put that there. I mean, you go to some grounds and you can see when they've been designed that somebody hasn't looked at it from a media perspective. When you get those little fold down, um, almost like a desk, like almost like you were hot desking on a laptop or a seat in on a train, when you can pull the one down in front of you, because once you've got all your equipment on there, you pretty much can't move because they give you this very small area to work with. And as you guys know, you've got a lot of equipment in front of you that you need to use. And so, where are you going to write your notes? What are you going to do if you? Have a bottle of water or anything like that. You are just stuck. While some grounds like Underhill was, and also um, various others like Bradford, etc., you've got plenty of room, and it's designed accordingly for teams that have dropped down the leagues, like um, Bradford's, where they've been a Premier League ground. Obviously, they have to get up to certain standards, and so then you're blessed with them being lower down the leagues because you're getting Premier League standard behind the scenes. So. There can be, as you well, as we both mentioned earlier, a huge difference in stature between the likes of a Bradford and Accrington-Stanley. I mean, Accrington's a lovely place to go in the fact, because I'm sure everybody listening is going to be going, well, Accrington's a lovely Have you been to Accrington-Stanley? Yeah, I have a couple of times. But the press guys there, they haven't got two pennies to rub together. They're absolutely skin. And the viewing isn't great or anything like that, but they are so helpful. They try and do anything they can to help you there. They will bring out any wires they can f- find that will help with extension leads. If anything's not working, they'll try and fix it there. And then they couldn't have a better media site there. So when I heard they went up, I was absolutely chuffed for them because it's a lovely club with literally nothing that works hard. It, it is really a community thing with Accrington. When I've gone to cover games there, you can, it's literally like the whole place has turned out to watch the match. So absolutely chuff for them.
0: Moving on to your your own career a little bit. Um, you stopped commentating on Barnet when they dropped into the conference after that, that relegation at Northampton Town. What have you gone on to do since with your commentary career? Well, after the um,
1: relegation at Northampton, uh, BBC London didn't want to lose me. So what they did was they not not for my benefit far from it but they were revamping the show anyway well they were having sort of a third man within the main game so you had phil parry and the co-commentator whether that was bradley allen jamie scowcroft whoever that was they were covering the game and then you had myself i wouldn't say running it from there but i was updating them with all the latest scores keeping an eye on if there's going to be any substitutions I went and interviewed the managers after the game, which was fantastic. It was, you know, it was surreal. You know, I was going to places like um, Villa Park, the bowling ground, White Hart Lane. Um, you're interviewing, I was interviewing like Big Sam, Tony Pulis. I got to interview Jose once. Uh, Tim Sherwood was in charge of Tottenham at the time. And I got to interview Ian Holloway, which was one of the funniest things I've ever had to do. Because it was Millwall away at Derby. He was manager of Millwall at the time. Millwall won one nil. And uh, you interview managers in various different places. It's quite often pitch side. And at Derby, they said the only place you can interview is pitch side. So we've got it set up. Millwall TV asked if they could record it as well, which I had no problem with. And at uh, Derby's ground, they have the executive boxes quite close to the actual pitch. And so a few lads have been in there. They've obviously had a few sherbets and they've noticed that Ian Holloway's about to be interviewed so they've come down out of there and they're standing front row of the main stand so they're no more than 10 yards from us and they're hurling abuse at Holloway saying oh your team was cheating you were diving you were time wasting your team's a disgrace this that and the other And just as I'm about to start interviewing Holloway he's going I'm not having that and he's just walked off and started arguing with these Derby fans trying to explain this that and the other he's finally come back again and he hasn't let it go he's still going at him because. Oi, you want to come in my dressing room, mate? It's like I've seen out a mash in there. Just carry on, arguing with them for like five minutes or so. And eventually I've got to try and interview him. I've got the giggles because his comebacks are very, very good. And these Derby fans are losing. And there was seven or eight of them. But by the time he'd finished with them, they had to go off tail between their legs. But yeah, Holloway's a fantastic character. I've no idea what he's like behind the scenes as a manager, but to actually interview, it's absolute gold. So yeah, I'm still carrying on, still doing, like I said, that was for a year. And since then, I've been doing just bits and bobs for BBC Manchester, Wales, BBC London, Sheffield. Just sort of in and out, not doing it every week most of the time, but not every week because, I mean, for five years I covered Barnet home and away. I'm not getting any younger. Um, I'm in my early forties now. I've got have uh, been with my wife for crikey about twenty odd years. I've got an eight-year-old son, so I don't you know I don't want to be travelling all of all of the time. It's, it's lovely to obviously cover football, as you guys know. The, the rush is something else. The adrenaline when the game starts is fantastic. I still can't hear Sweet Child of Mine without getting goosebumps, and that could just be in the car driving to work or anything like that. So, yeah, fantastic. And you know, as a little side note, away from football, as you may or may not know, I was on Countdown and won a few games there, so I got the teapot.
0: So, yeah, that's good. Do you um do you still follow the bees' fortunes? Do you ever head down to the hive? I still follow their
1: fortunes, always keep an eye out for the results, always where I can chat with some of the ex-players, like I'm quite good friends with Mark Byrne, uh, speak to Hughesy occasionally, Sam Cox, who played at the Times just recently, got some training badges, so he's looking at going into coaching, so I keep in contact with the players that used to play, but as for getting down to the Hive itself, I've been down there a couple of times uh, once I helped out and commentated I can't remember what game it was it was ironically Mark Hughes was playing I think it was for Chelmsford he was playing for so I've been down there once working but um, no I haven't I mean I haven't been down there for a long time in all honesty I go and watch my local side Cambridge if I'm not working, or I'll just go and watch my even localer side, Soham, which is the town I live in. So I get my footy fix somewhere. But as for actually getting back to watch Barnet, apart from always keeping an eye out for their results, and I get updates on my phone whenever anything happens at the club, It's I'm watching from afar now more than right at the ground.
0: I know that you're also involved in something called commentary services, and that you regularly run these commentary workshops for budding commentators. Can you tell me a little bit about both of those things?
1: yeah sure Um, Barry Swain was the guy that I first got into commentary with he was the one that gave me the opportunity right at the beginning and uh, we've stayed great friends ever since been to each other's weddings um, and you know our friendships developed from there we always help each other out where we can and we come up with the idea because the amount of times we'd be commentating on a game and somebody because press areas are normally within a main stand there's a lot of spectators around you they'll be like oh but how did you get into commentary? I'd love to have a go at that. How did you do this or what did you do there? And so we thought, well, hang on a second. This is something we could do. And so what we have is we normally go to a non-league ground. Uh, for example, Met Police are very good in accommodating the They've got a lovely setup there. So we may go somewhere like that. And we'll go there on the day. We take a load of aspiring commentators with us. For the morning, we get down to the ground, say 10, 11 o'clock for a 3 o'clock kickoff. We talk through how we got into commentary, what things we had to do to get to the stage we're at now, what equipment we use on the match day, what research you have to do beforehand, little tricks of the trade on how to do certain things. And then at uh, three o'clock, they'll commentate on the game. We've set up various recording equipment so we can record all of the game's commentaries from it. So everybody that's set up will commentate on it for 90 minutes and then when they're finished, We'll have a little chat afterwards, see what they felt went well, what they didn't, and then we take it back, edit it accordingly, and then give them their, their well, I suppose demos afterwards, which they can use either just to keep, because some people get the um, workshops as a present, like a Christmas present or something like that, or they'll use that to hopefully get themselves some games covering whichever club they manage to get their feet into. The commentary services is something that uh, myself and Barry have set up in the fact. That um, we've covered games before people have a game where maybe it's a sponsored game like it's for a large city bank or something like that where they've played a game of football they'll get somebody to record it and then they'll send it to us and then myself and Barry will go into the studio and edit commentary over it so they'll tell us who the players are like um, say for example you were playing it, they say "Oh, Will Evans he's the fullback number four or whatever this that and the other and then we commentate on it for them so we provide them but the service of well, commentary so if there's a game like that or even if it's a lower league game if they haven't got a commentator there they'll contact us and say will you commentate over our
0: recording for us so that just adds a bit to it St Carl, it's been a, a real pleasure to chat to you, you know, I listened to you for many years while I was living abroad so it's great to actually talk to you in person thank you very much for your time it's much appreciated
1: no no problem anytime been a pleasure